Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, Dr. Christy Brown Montesano discusses the multifaceted female leads in LA Opera's 22-23 season. Tickets to LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. Please be advised that some of the content in this episode may not be suitable for all audiences. Hello there. I'm Dr. Christy Brown Montesano, your friendly local musicologist and fellow opera lover, and I'm excited to explore with you today one of my favorite topics, women in opera. Specifically for this podcast, a look at the leading female roles in the more established repertoire works that the Los Angeles Opera is staging this coming season. We're talking about Donizetti's Lucia di Lavamore, Puccini's Tosca, Verdi's Otello, and Debussy's Pelias et Melisande. All of these works are tragic ones, dating from a golden age of the current standard repertoire of dramatic, serious operas. So we're talking basically from about the mid-19th century to the early years of the 20th. The season also includes some new works, which we won't be able to talk about today, and Mozart's Le Nozze di Figaro, the only comedy of the bunch. So I'll save it for last. I think it will function well as what dramatists of Mozart's time called the lieto fine, the happy ending. And we might need one of those after the grimmer storylines of our other operas in which none of the female heroines survive. The choice to dramatize, to aestheticize violent acts against women, to use their martyr-like deaths as a means of inciting pathos, is a pretty common thread in the long romantic century, whether in novels or plays or operas. Very effective in terms of dramatic catharsis, but also culturally and ethically tricky particularly today when we are called to be hyper aware of a global crisis of violence against women, from domestic violence to sexual assault to honor killings. And I know people come up and say, yes, but this is historical. These are historical works. That was the culture then. And it's true. Most of our repertoire in Western opera is their older works. They're coming from a different time. Moreover, a number of the ones from this season are looking at an even further back time. So written in the 19th century, but looking back to the 17th, for instance. But we ask art to do cultural work now. We hold these operas up for their great music and the compelling drama we ask people to pay attention to these, and, and there's no denying that these stories get under our skins, and they get into the shared cultural psyche. That's one of the great things about art, but it comes with a challenge. And these stories of the four operas that I'm going to talk about first, the serious ones, are also pretty darn patriarchal. Lucia, Tosca, Melisande, Desdemona and the women of Figaro, the Countess, Susanna, Marcellina, and even young Barbarina are caught in systems in which they have relatively little agency and autonomy. And gotta be honest, as an opera scholar, I often find this pretty depressing. But one of the winning aspects of opera as a lived entertainment is the genre's flexibility 
that flexibility that comes in combining all of that gorgeous familiar music with new visual and staging ideas. And I want to emphasize production, staging is essential, not superimposed onto the operatic experience. It Opera has always been about what we take in visually and emotionally and mentally as well as orally. I really value about that. And for someone who, like me, who has studied women in opera for decades now, one of the most exciting things about going to a performance is kind of the anticipation about what the creative team will will do, what fresh interpretations will be proposed about these iconic characters. Let's start with Lucia di Lammermoor and Tosca. Since these operas have a number of significant elements in common, even though there's a 60 plus year gap between their premieres and quite large differences in their styles and general aesthetics, at the very least, you have Gothic romantic with Lucia and gritty verismo, that movement of realism so popular in Italy at the end of the 19th and, and the beginning of the 20th century. Both of the operas use a historicized background context of political unrest. For Lucia, you're in the middle of 17th century Scotland during civil conflicts. For Tosca, Rome in 1800 during Napoleon's early battle against Imperial Austria, which had control of most of Northern Italy. But despite those being historical settings, both operas are based on relatively contemporary and popular fictional source material. Sir Walter Scott's novel, The Bride of Lammermoor, and Victorien Sardou's play La Tosca. So you have something that they would have been familiar with in their lifetimes, Donizetti and Puccini. Those are two things that in general these operas have in common, but the biggest thing they have in common, frankly, is that they both feature the same shocking narrative catastrophe, one that is rare in opera, a woman stabbing a man to death. How do we get to that dramatic moment? Who are these women? As I mentioned, Donizetti based his opera on Scott's novel, and in that novel, the narrator describes Lucy Ashton, Lucia, in rather conventional and frankly, very Caucasian fairy tale princess language. So I'm going to read a little bit from the novel here. Her exquisitely beautiful yet somewhat girlish features were formed to express peace of mind, serenity, and indifference to the tinsel of worldly pleasure. Her locks, which were of shadowy gold, divided on a brow of exquisite whiteness like a gleam of broken and pallid sunshine upon a hill of snow. The expression of the countenance was in the last degree gentle, soft, timid, and feminine, and seemed rather to shrink from the most casual look of a stranger than to court his admiration. Something there was of a Madonna cast, perhaps the result of delicate health and of residence in a family where the dispositions of the inmates were fiercer, more active and energetic than her own. Okay, so <laughs> we have a lot of gendered language here, a lot of stereotypes, not least the fact that Lucy has the purity of a virgin maiden, a veritable Virgin Mary waiting for her adult life to actually begin when she will go from the guidance of her parents to that of her husband. 
But Scott adds a qualifying remark about Lucy that I think is useful to point out in terms of the larger trajectory of her story. And here it is. Her passiveness of disposition was by no means owing to an indifferent or unfeeling mind. Left to the impulse of her own taste and feelings, Lucy Ashton was peculiarly accessible to those of a romantic cast. Her secret delight was in the old legendary tales of ardent devotion and unalterable affection, checkered as they so often are with strange adventures and supernatural horrors. In fact, there was still an ongoing debate during Scott and Donizetti's time, during that first part of the 19th century, about the healthiness of novels on the impressionable feminine mind. Think Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, which was published just eight years before The Bride of Lammermoor. This reference to Lucy's interest, her susceptibility to romantic elements comes off as a little bit meta since Scott himself packs the novel with these same romantic markers and more. The historical setting in rough and wild lands, ghosts, hauntings, fearful omens, political intrigue and revolutions. In the novel, there's like a woman who's very crone-like and of course, fatal passions. So in both the book and the opera, Lucy's heightened sensibility, her romantic side makes her vulnerable to a kind of heedless go with your heart to the death attachment. In fact, the romantic generations of artists of, of Scott's and Donizetti's time were infatuated with Shakespeare, who saw a resurgence in popularity during the 19th century. And Scott's novel, and arguably even to a higher degree, Donizetti's opera, leverage the Romeo and Juliet formula of star-crossed lovers and clannish feuds. So Lucy, Lucia, Ashton, and Edgardo Ravenswood are from enemy families. The opera is more streamlined in this sense. It jettisons the historic detail for the most part, and also the Shakespearean mixture of comic and serious that characterizes Scott's novel. The opera also sharply cuts the number of characters. The novel has the villainous element spread across three of the Ashton family, Lucy's mother, father, and brother. But Donizetti's librettist, Salvadore Camarano, consolidated these into a single antagonist, Lucia's hot-headed and toxically proud older brother, Enrico. In her first appearance in the opera, Lucia, in the company of her lady's maid, Elisa, awaits anxiously for Edgardo to arrive at their secret meeting place. An evocative orchestral introduction features a prolonged turn for solo harp, which makes me almost think, you know, it's signaling through music, her angelic nature. And this harp returns a little later in the scene, accompanying Cuando Rapido in Estasi, when Lucia rhapsodizes about how her sorrow melts away when she's near Edgardo and heaven opens for her. Oh, <laughs> 
Gorgeous, right? But before this delicious outburst about her divine love for Edgardo, Lucia shows us something more of that gothic romantic side, telling Elisa about the night when she herself saw the ghost of a woman who had been murdered by her jealous lover, a Ravenswood. The man had stabbed the girl to death, letting her body fall into the nearby stream. So let's think about this, encounters with the supernatural. A sense of foreboding, a woman murdered, a lover who succumbs to his violent emotions, contrasted with the heady paradise of forbidden love. These are the dramatic elements with which Lucia introduces herself to us in the opera. So it's no wonder that many commentators kind of point to Lucia as the epitome of the Romantic Age tragic heroine. By the end of the first act, Lucia and Edgardo have pledged themselves to each other, Without official sanction or permission, they consider themselves man and wife. So how do we get to the point where she kills someone? Let's remember that in Donizetti's opera, Lucia has already lost her father and now grieves the more recent death of her mother. So she's fairly vulnerable when she finds Edgardo, this kind of breath of life. But the parental guardian rights have fallen to her brother, Enrico, a self-serving, gaslighting symbol of abusive patriarchal power, if there ever was one. Desperate to marry Lucia off to an expedient ally, now that his side is losing in Scotland's civil conflicts, he menaces his sister, condemns her for alleged treachery, emotionally blackmails her, going so far as to say that after he is executed, and he's very clear that this will be decapitation by axe, he will haunt her, that she will be guilty for his death. Enrico also isolates Lucia. He has intercepted Edgardo's letters to her and presented her with a fake one that suggests that Edgardo has gone off with another woman. The usual gendered script here might call for Lucia simply to do what she's told and be really unhappy, to die passively of a broken heart or violently by her own hand like Juliet. Instead, Lucia, who tries, in a sense, to please everyone and no one, collapses psychologically after every male guide fails her. Her brother, Raimondo, the cleric who tells her, look, at this point, you should just obey your brother for your dead mother's sake so that your brother isn't killed. And even Edgardo, who curses her for breaking her vow, apparently not thinking about who she's dealing with. Ultimately, and kind of strikingly, she takes her revenge against the one man who doesn't really come into play in terms of her affections, her new bridegroom, Lord Arturo Bacla, and then appears to the wedding guests covered in blood and with this vacant look in her eyes. It is a horrific scene for which Donizetti created an especially chilling tour de force of coloratura to illustrate Lucia's mental state. As opera scholar Marianne Smart has talked about it, there seems to be an intuitive connection between madness and coloratura. Trills, melismas, and high notes suggest hysteria, an unbearable pitch of emotion. 
In a sense, coloratura is free from the confinement of music and of language. A syllable stretched beyond recognition is an escape from signification, the emergence of irrationality and madness. Let's listen to a passage from this mad scene with Lucia recalling the melody she first sang lovingly to Edgardo in Act One. And so we leave Povera Lucia and turn now to the famous diva Floria Tosca, who would seem to be the obverse of shy, gentle Lucia Ashton, and not just in terms of spirit, but even appearance. In Sardou's play, La Tosca becomes jealous when she sees a painting of Mary Magdalene that her lover Mario Cavaradossi has just finished. She knows that the golden-haired, blue-eyed beauty is not her. She tells Mario that he'd better paint the eyes black so that he won't be tempted to think about the actual model. In the opera adaptation, Puccini's librettist Luigi Illica makes the point more obvious and more tender. Before Tosca arrives on the scene, Cavaradossi muses out loud while looking at his painting, concealed harmony of different beauties. Floria, my ardent love, is brunette, she's bruna. While you, unknown lovely, crowned with blonde locks, you have eyes of blue. Toscas are black. Art in its mysteries has blended two contrasting beauties. But even as I paint her portrait, my only thought is of you, Tosca. In fact, Floria Tosca is kind of the ultimate diva, a celebrated singer in an opera that celebrates the power of art signaling that a major component of her charisma, her power, is her voice. Tosca is a fiery protagonist, passionate in her earthly love and her spiritual devotion to God and her art. She has her flaws. She's proud in a celebrity way. (laughs) She is used to being gazed at, admired, and sought after, and can be overly jealous. The stage directions at her first entrance indicate that she enters with a kind of violence, brusquely pushing Cavaradossi away when he tries to embrace her and begins looking around suspiciously because the painter has locked the door while, unbeknownst to Tosca, he was talking with a political fugitive. Tosca, we later learn, is also tender-hearted, generous, and sincere in her love of Cavaradossi and of God. She tries to be a good person, as she makes clear in her credo of sorts, the celebrated aria Visidarte, which begins, I lived for art, I lived for love, never did I harm a living soul. With a discreet hand, I helped every unfortunate person that I knew. Tosca's artistry and beauty, maybe even her fundamental kindness, draw the predatory gaze of the police chief, Baron Scarpia, a sadistic hypocrite who abuses his power without conscience. This is Italian verismo, 
There are no ghosts here, no romantic formulas of sudden insanity that strike like a demonic possession. One senses that Lucia would never have been able to pick up that knife unless robbed completely of reason. Tosca, on the other hand, seems more than ready to defend herself and those she loves to the death if necessary. The reality of her situation, both in the play and the opera, is just as ghastly as Lucia's. She hears Cavaradossi's screams and groans as he is tortured, and so do we. This was one element of realism that many contemporary critics cited as going too far. So even after she bargains with Scarpia for her lover's life and safe passage out of Rome, she cannot submit to his terms. And unlike the unfortunate bridegroom, Bucklaw, in Lucia, Scarpia is a fully fleshed out nemesis, a truly monstrous guy. So it's pretty easy to sympathize with Tosca's rage, her decision to fight back, to thrust the blade into his chest with a growl, Questo è il bacio di Tosca. This is the kiss of Tosca. It would be great if Tosca and her beloved Mario escaped. They lived and made art happily somewhere far away. But this is Verismo Opera, showing us the brutal side of reality. Cavradossi is executed. Tosca is on a high tower and cornered by the police. But even as she chooses to jump, it is not so much defeat, but, given her devout beliefs, a step towards divine justice and vengeance in the next world. And she cries out, O Scarpia, avanti a Dio, literally saying, O Scarpia, forward to God. But it comes off much more as those lines we hear in the movie, you know, I'll see you in hell. She plans to argue her case fearlessly. As I said before, every production offers the chance to stage and spotlight various aspects of these two characters, Lucia and Tosca, particularly in the moment of their violent resistance. The stage directions in both operas emphasize that these women stare people down. Camarano, the librettist for Donizetti, indicates that Lucia has a stony gaze as she looks at the wedding guests. And Floria Tosca does not shrink away from looking straight at Scarpia. Once he's dead, she calmly washes her hand, takes the blood off, grabs the orders for their safe passage. She's very clear that her, that whole thing was about escaping and she's not going to lose it now. The agency then of Lucia and Tosca lies in extreme contrast to our other two dramatic female characters this season. This Demona, and I'll use the Italian pronunciation for the opera character, and Melisande, who are both much more passive their deaths coming almost without strong protest on their own behalf, at least as far as the librettos indicate.
The active resistance of these two characters, Tosca and Lucia, lies in striking contrast to the passivity of our other two dramatic female characters this season, Desdemona, and I'll use the Italian pronunciation for the opera character, and Melisande, who both accept their fate without strong protest, at least as far as the librettos indicate. Writing about Verdi's Otello, musicologist Scott Balthazar notes that the composer and his librettist, Arrigo Boito, greatly expanded the role of Desdemona, giving her much more time on stage than Shakespeare's Desdemona, and creating an even more idealized image than the original. By emphasizing Desdemona's purity, naivete, and vulnerability, the creators were following a well-worn playbook for women in tragic opera. In Balthazar's words, the cathartic destruction of a sympathetic female lead with which their audience could readily identify and sympathize. Like Floria Tosca and Lucia Ashton, Desdemona is caught up in a conflict primarily between two men. In this case, her husband Otello and his ensign Iago though Otello is not aware of Iago's campaign against him. But the opera also strengthens, it pushes to the front, a dialectical tension between Iago and Desdemona. In contrast to the declamatory melodic style, the slippery harmonic language and glib trills and chromatic slides that characterize Iago's musical style, Verdi described Desdemona as, quote, a part where the thread the melodic line never stops from the first to the last note. Just as Iago must only declaim and snicker, so Desdemona must always sing. Therefore, the most perfect Desdemona will always be the one who sings best. Her first appearance in the opera, Woken Out of Sleep, excites the protective love of her husband, the Moorish general of the Venetian Republic really a BIPOC soldier living in a world that respects his honor and bravery while still implicitly and explicitly demoting him on the basis of skin color. And yet he and Desdemona find each other, bound themselves to each other, and their first love duet is really one of Verdi's most moving musical creations. Verdi highlights the binary opposition of these two characters, namely Iago and Desdemona, quite overtly. 
and in a manner that would have connected forcefully with the largely Roman Catholic audience at La Scala during his time. He and Boito created original soliloquies, in a sense, for both characters. The first is Iago's Credo, which, of course, is also a central part of the Mass, the I believe, we believe in this, we believe in this. Uh, but they rewrote that with a bitterly cynical, even nihilistic text. And then the composer and librettist made another original interpolation with Desdemona's Ave Maria, adding quite personalized petitions to this well-known Catholic prayer. And in fact, this prayer, as she awaits Otello to come to her bedchamber, is the last time we hear her truly sing. Unlike Lucia and Tosca, who strike out against the men who are harming them, Desdemona excuses Otello, forgives him after he has fatally strangled her and she's breathing her last breaths because she loves him. But even so, and, and that is supposed to just strike us in the heart, but it's very difficult to listen to her final choked words when her maid, Emilia, horrified, asks, great God, who did this? And Desdemona, who is dressed in a bridal gown of some sort, as per her request, responds, no one, I myself, commend me to my Lord. I die innocent. Addio. In this case, Boito struck pretty closely to the original Shakespeare, though it's telling that he and Verdi chose to admit Desdemona's first line in this death moment, where she says, oh, falsely, falsely murdered. The last of our tragic characters, Melisande, is also attacked by her husband, Golot, after he sees her in an embrace with his brother Peleas. These elements, jealousy, revenge, infidelity, connect, obviously, to Otello, not to mention Tristan de Isolde and the Arthurian legend of Guinevere and Lancelot. However, that kind of narrative surface is possibly even less important 
than an inner subjective narrative. Debussy fashioned the libretto for Pelleas et Melisande himself after a relatively recent play of the same name by the Belgian symbolist Maurice Maeterlinck. And Maeterlinck was notable in the symbolist movement for his particular approach to the aesthetic. As musicologist Hugh MacDonald has observed, Maeterlinck departed most radically from his fellow symbolists and from Wagner in the style of his language. Instead of alliterated consonants, obscure fantastic vocabulary, ornate syntax, and suggestive or archaic poetic conceits, he avoided all fanciful language and wrote in the plainest prose. Debussy's musical style for the opera corresponds well to Maeterlinck's relatively simple but highly evocative language. Both the music and the text have almost like childlike straightforwardness. The characters frequently repeat words, and these words are, are symbolic of an inner life, an inner struggle, the psychological drama of the subconscious. I find the opening scene of the opera, Pelias et Melisande, to be especially powerful, not least because we immediately meet the female lead. The other operas we've been exploring, and Mozart's Figaro as well, delay the appearance of the primary female role. Instead, Melisande appears almost immediately, but as something of a cipher. In the opening scene, her identity is only hinted at. What she mostly projects is fear and sadness, a wounded innocence, trauma, and a lack of any clear identity. The opera opens and we see Prince Golo, who is the grandson of King Arkal, who is lost in the forest. And that's really kind of both a literal and figurative reference. He spots this very young woman crying by a spring. And this is Melisande. The setup is fairy tale stuff, nothing particularly interesting, except for Melisande's reaction. The first thing basically we hear from her besides sobbing Golo touches her shoulder and she cries, don't touch me, don't touch me. And these are her first words to us. And Golo tries to soothe her. Oh, don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. And he says, oh, you are so beautiful. But Melisande only says, again, don't touch me. Don't touch me or I will throw myself in the water. So Golo takes a step back, agrees to keep his distance and he asks, has someone wronged you? And she's crying even harder. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Three again. And as their dialogue continues, you know, you get the, the mystery of what has happened to bring her there, which is never really revealed. For me, the language, as simple as it is, is almost that much more chilling. Golol says, tell me, who has done you wrong? And Melisande says twice, everyone, everyone. And what wrong have they done? And Melisande says, I don't want to tell you. I cannot tell you. She does not know where her home is. She has run away from somewhere far away. The word loin, the, the far, is featured throughout the opera and in reference to many things, but especially to Melisande. She too, like Golo, is lost. Then suddenly Golo sees something glittering in the water and Melisande says, that's my crown, which has fallen off into the water while I was crying. And he goes to get it and she says, no, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. I'd rather die. 
right now. So Golo is reluctant to leave this, you know, he's attracted to beautiful things. He knows how the crown is beautiful. Melisande does not speak like an adult, really. She has this, again, this kind of childlike candor. And she just turns and says, oh, your hair is already gray. And Prince Golo answers a little defensively. Yeah, 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 maybe here a little bit in the temples. But she presses on, but your beard too. As a parent of three kids, I remember when they were small and, and I'm reminded of all those embarrassing observations, like incredibly honest, just spit out to strangers, to me, to like you know, about things that they notice when they're small. And this is how Melisande kind of comes out. The crown suggests a princess. She's clearly foreign. She says, I've come from Loin, come from far away. She's associated throughout the play and libretto with water, perhaps a nod to legends of water nymphs like uh, Melisine. She seems to be trying to shed certain markers of rank or possession. You know, she loses the golden crown. She later loses her golden wedding ring from Golo uh, when it falls into a well and she doesn't want Peleos to try to get it. We don't know why she agreed to marry him. There are no bona fide love scenes between Golo and Melisande. Instead, Melisande finds a true attachment or a truer attachment to Peleas, Golo's younger brother. The two share many, that is, Melisande and Peleas, share many of the same innocent qualities. She's comfortable with him. She's more honest with him. And she says something peculiar, you know, I only lied to Golo, but she doesn't say it in some kind of sneaky way. It comes out as though things just come out of her and she doesn't filter them. Yet even Peleas, who is much more psychologically in sync with Melisande, inadvertently hurts her through his own sensual carelessness, we'll call it. Most of the characters, uh, certainly the two brothers, are completely fascinated by Melisande's extremely long and lush hair and her huge eyes, the, the kinds of physical attributes that denote a hyper-feminine girlishness that is easily fetishized. Uh, we see this in fairy tale princesses and uh, even in contemporary anime characters. At one point, she lowers her hair, Rapunzel-like, to Peleos, who waits below. She's kind of up in a tower. And the young prince goes into an ecstatic and weirdly kind of self-pleasuring frenzy. I will tie your hair to the branch of the willow. You will never go free. You will no go never go free. Look, look, I want to touch your hair. I don't suffer anymore when I'm lost in your hair. Can you hear my kisses traveling along your hair? And this thing is, I can open my arms, my hands are free, but yet you cannot tear yourself away. So this idea of, again, taking pleasure and she's trapped, you know, you're not going to escape. And this ostensibly from somebody who loves her and she's returns that she's actually says several times, stop, let me go because someone's going to catch us. But at the end, she says, oh, you've hurt me. Oh, you've hurt me. So even Peleos forgets Melisande's kind of autonomy, her selfhood, he, he ignores her pleas to let her go. His desire cannot or will not hear her. Here's a excerpt from the hair scene. Je <laughs> 
Desdemona, Melisande dies in her bed. But unlike Isolde, for Wagner's Tristan to Isolde, who seems to will her own death and transfiguration at the end of Tristan, Melisande is confused, asking, who is going to die? Is it me? The doctor concludes that the small wound that Golot inflicted on his wife is not enough to kill her. So something else is draining her life away. And Melisande has recently had a baby. Again, we don't see this, but she doesn't seem to remember that. They said, you want to see your baby? And she's surprised. And, and then she takes the child, this pitifully small little girl, into her arms and remarks, she does not smile. She's so tiny. She's going to weep as well. I'm sorry for her. King Arkel, who throughout the opera views Melisande with much more of a kind of paternal caretaking gaze, he doesn't have that desire, states sadly after her death, she was such a quiet little creature, so shy, silent, poor little creature. So it keeps it so literally she was the little creature, wrapped in mystery as we all are. There she lies as though she were the elder sister of this child. He talked about, you know, let's go. The, the child shouldn't remain here in this chamber with her now dead mother. Its life is precious in place of its mother. And so now it's the turn of this poor little daughter. And there's a deep, deep pathos to these words, because this is not just a little baby's, a, a daughter's loss of her mother, but King Arkell's words really suggest that this is a new médecine. And there seems to be no guarantee or perhaps even hope that this new Melisande will have a different story with a different ending. And so I think we need that lieto fine, that happy ending that I had mentioned earlier on after these grim, heartbreaking stories. And Mozart's Marriage of Figaro not only provides this, but more significantly for our topic today, offers a brilliant, satisfying, and very unusual example of sisterhood in the canonic opera repertoire. The Countess Almaviva and her lady's maid, Susanna, show a remarkable capacity for female friendship and solidarity that transcends, frankly, genre conventions and also their very different social classes within the story world. It is not Susanna's betrothed, the title character, the jolly and clever Figaro, who comes up with the plan that successfully defeats the abusive behavior of Count Almaviva, who is trying to coerce Susanna into a quid pro quo sexual bargain. It is the Countess who enlists Susanna's help. And their letter duet is just such a breathtaking number, such a beautiful pairing of soprano voices that takes us to an emotional place far beyond the pedestrian instructions that are the actual text, what the Countess is telling Susanna to do as part of their plan. Let's listen.
In the film, The Shawshank Redemption, a prisoner finds a way to play this duet over the PA system so that all of the incarcerated men can hear it. And one of them remarks, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are better left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. With that, I thank you again for joining me, Dr. Christy Brown Montesano, in this short introduction to Lucia, La Tosca, Desdemona, Medizante, and the Countess and Susanna. Whether you will be attending one of this season's operas for the first time or seeing a familiar favorite again, I hope that this overview of these amazing female characters will enrich your experience and make you even more excited to hear and see them. On behalf of the Los Angeles Opera, I look forward to seeing you there. Tickets to LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.